Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And we're reading short and deep. The Wolf by Guy de Maupassant. Um, I found out that the translation we're using is by uh, someone named Jonathan Sturgis. Um, and uh, that came out maybe around 1903. Uh, Henry James uh, was the guy who did the introduction in the uh, the book, which was called The Odd Number, uh, trans, uh, 13 Stories by Guy de Maupassant. Terrific. Thank you for that. I, I was concerned somewhat about the translation there. Places where uh, I think it looks terrific, but uh, mm. eh, some places where it kind of makes me ask, uh, is the story a little different if we were to read it in French? So that raises the whole question. What story are we reading? Yeah, it's pretty. I think it's pretty good. I've looked at the French and um, line by line, it's pretty close. I think, you know, whenever you have any kind of translation, uh, you're going to have a little bit of change but uh Guy de Maupassant I've read a lot of his stuff and it it it, it it's very beautifully translated usually just like with Borges um it, it, the writing allows for beautiful translation somehow I understand that uh and I, I read it in the French as well um but you know you still have to ask yourself uh in the translation we're using it's called the white wolf mm-hmm. and it says also known as the wolf but in the French, it's just le loup, um, the wolf. And right. so you have to ask, what kind of active translation is going on when someone decides that it might be more appropriate to call this the white wolf? Um, is there, for example, a reference here to the white whale? Because mm. this is a sort of mythic story or it can be read that way. Um, we're told in the story that the, the title uh, creature, this huge, huge wolf, um, actually is gray. It's, it's a very light gray, almost white, but, but not white. So, um, you know, one asks, that's all. There is a, a line later on in the story that uh, paints it as white. Um, and that actually made me think that they might be chasing two different wolves. Um, this story, I don't know if you know uh, anything about the background for, for this story. You know, maybe um, it would be, would you just give a quick refresher of what the story is? And sure. then the background will be understood. So uh, there's a dinner party and a framing narrative in which the uh, descendant of the Marquis d'Arville uh, relates the story of two of his ancestors, his his great 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 grandfather and uh, his great 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 uncle, who were marvelous hunters. Um, they hunted day and night. It was the only thing they lived for. They were so busy hunting that they didn't really pay attention to things around the house, like having their children being born and such. Uh, one day in one year in 1764, a beast. Uh, a wolf starts ravaging the countryside, uh, killing babies, chewing women's arms off, uh, snuffling at the doors and scaring everybody. And these two great hunters go after the wolf. That's the basic premise of the story. Uh, you don't want to say how it ends? Uh, well, I, it, it ends with the framing narrative. And I think, uh, it, I think the whole story is a joke with 
lots of things to th- leave you thinking about. The the main character uh, telling the story, the Marquis d'Arville, ends with saying, this is why I've never hunted. Or maybe that's how it starts. This is why I've never hunted and my father hasn't hunted and his father never hunted. Well, and, according to the story that the Marquis tells the dinner guests, um, in fact, uh, although the, 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 they are guests at the house of Baron de Ravel, not, in fact, at the Marquis' house, but at someone right. else's house. Um, and everybody has gone out during the day to hunt like crazy, which is appropriate because they're eating uh, dinner uh, at St. Hubert's feast day. And St. Hubert is the patron saint of hunters. Right. Um, so everybody's gone out hunting except this marquis, and uh, and he tells the story about why he never hunts. But after the story about his great great grandfather and that man's brother hunting the wolf, um, what happens is that the wolf, sort of in the story, induces the, the those two brothers to chase him madly through the woods, and uh, the great great grandfather. Draw, rides his horse smash underneath a tree and the limb hits him in the head knocks him to the ground and his skull is broken open and and he dies and the, the, the Marquis says that and he must know this story if it's a true story passed down from his great 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 uncle all the way through down the line um, says it's at, you know says the wolf had killed you know Jean uh, he had induced him to have this mad gallop, so the wolf killed him. And then what what uh, Francois, the younger brother, does is corner the wolf in a rocky area, and he props up his dead brother and says, okay, now watch this, watch this. And he strangles the wolf rather than gently, it says, right? And so then he takes both of the bodies back to the house. And the widow of the of uh, Jean, who is the mother of the great grandfather of the person telling the story, um, she never wants to have anybody hunt, and she instills a an antipathy to hunting in her son, and that antipathy has been passed down generation by generation to the marquis, who's telling the story. So we have maybe two wolves, as you say, maybe one wolf, maybe it's a fantasy wolf. In, in the French, we're told that is, uh, the wolf is called fantastique um, at that point. Uh, it's different from what it says in the English translation. And, uh, and then we have to know what, is, what does the wolf stand for in the life of the character as an excuse in the social structure and all of that. Does that, that seem right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, does, um, does background bear on that? Oh, yeah. So in 1764, um, there was a huge public outcry about wolf attacks and in, in France, um, in, in Jean Vedon, which is in central France, not where the story um, takes place here. But that resonance is, is important. And great hunters were, were sent uh, out by the king to hunt and kill the wolf and they they thought they had found it they found a gigantic wolf they had it stuffed and sent to the court of the king um but the attacks continued um and i i love werewolf stories and i i kind of think that this is a werewolf story 
without a werewolf, exactly. Although they, the brothers do assert that it has the cunning of a man. They ask, uh, they say, maybe we should have had a, a blessed bullet from our cousin, the bishop. Right. All, right. All the things that make us think of uh, werewolfery um, and the hunting of werewolves. But I, I think, I think that the, so if you were a reader of this story in French uh, at the time in France, you would certainly have that year in mind because it was, it's probably still in the public consciousness in France, uh, in France. And, and St. Hubert, as you say, uh, is the patron saint of hunters, but he's also the saint who, who is said to moderate hunting behavior. That is, um, to not do as the brothers Francois and Jean did, which is a hunt day and night, uh, kill everything, um, you know, getting ready before the actual hunt. The uh, Jean or Francois is shooting birds around the castle, right? Just to get ready, checking on the horses, checking on the dogs, shooting the birds just around the castle, just to get ready. And then they actually go out and do hunting proper. So... This the sense of moderation of uh, uh, the beast of Saint, uh, the, the beast not being killable and stopping the the kills, is is I think something going on in the story, and the fact that it is uh, uh, the feast of Saint Hubert, uh, which is November third. Um, there's something very interestingly resonant about the story and then it's completely undercut by the final line which i think is why you know i love guillemot pizzon he makes so much fun of everything that when when this horrible story about you know two bloodthirsty brothers who go after a bloodthirsty animal and one of them comes back carrying the bro- the body of his brother with brains dashed out all over the forest and monstrous, you know, monstrously detailed in the gruesomeness of it. Uh, one of the ladies at the dinner party says in a very soft voice, all the same, it is fine to have passions like that. <laughs> and that's the last oh, point of the story. Um, I, it is, I love it. Well, yeah, you, uh, you know, I, in some sense, it's a joke. Of course, jokes are structurally akin to tragedy, not to comedy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seems to me that that there's a lot going on in this story having to do with gender and having to do with class um, mm-hmm. that, that makes this, uh, even reading it as a joke, makes it a very weighty joke. You know, um, when we're told before the story begin, before we get to the inner story that is related by the Marquis, when we just have the narrator saying, this is what the, na- the Marquis told us uh, at the St. Hubert uh, dinner at the house of Baron de Ravel, um, it says the ladies themselves were interested in bloody and exaggerated tales. Mm-hmm. And the orators who were talking about their day hunting imitated the attacks and the combats of men against beasts, raised their arms, and romanced in a thundering voice. Mm-hmm. That is, they were trying to, to make themselves into larger-than-life heroes to delight the ladies. And when the Marquis tells a story um, of how horrible this passion for, for hunting can be, 
uh, in a soft voice, one of the ladies says, oh, but it is a fine thing, isn't it, to have such a passion? And I think we get, we get, uh, and that leads to the joke, I hear you laughing, Jesse, but mm-hmm. in the middle of the story, I mean chronologically, it's, it's toward the end in the text, we have the alternative. The alternative to a young lady who is enamored of a swashbuckling man is the widow of someone who has risked his life unnecessarily. And it's that widow, according to the Marquis, who engenders the antipathy to, uh, to uh, hunting in her son and then the son's son and the son's son and so on down the line to the Marquis. So what we see is, I think, a critique that suggests that the bloodthirstiness of men is in fact abetted by the the pleasures of women but the mm-hmm. pleasures of women are in a way self-protective so this marquis who has in fact learned something right from his great 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 grandmother um is really looked at as something effeminate and i think we know that he feels he has to justify the fact that he is not bloodthirsty because we're told in the beginning that he told the story fluidly as if he had told it many times um so this is a guy who's got to keep explaining by showing off how horrible hunting can be why it is he doesn't hunt he needs to justify himself in this in this world of 1883 when the story is written. Uh, that's a world um, that has something else that goes back, if you look back in the, between 1764 with that great wolf um, scare and 1883, we have the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. In the French Revolution, we get, of course, the execution of many of the aristocrats. In this story, we are told that the current aristocracy is trying to make sure that it secures its lands entirely on the basis of hereditary rights. And there's a lovely, clearly funny, but satiric Mm. paragraph in which we're told that the son of a a viscount is no more a, a, a baron, excuse me, the son of a baron is no more a viscount then the son of a general is born a colonel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what what the story does is call the current aristocracy chance aristocrats. Uh, but they want to become um, hereditary. Excuse me, he, he calls that idea chance aristocrats. He wants aristocrats that have earned their place as aristocrats. So presumably those great-great-grandparents, they were aristocrats because they were men. You know, mm-hmm. They deserve to be aristocrats as opposed to those who just sort of inherit the title. And that argument against chance aristocracy, I think, is part of what's going on in the middle of the 19th century is the French are wondering what has happened to our revolution. As we have aristocrats again, people who just have land and titles, and we peasants are dying like those who are eaten by the wolf. Mm-hmm. When when Francois brings the body of his brother back to their castle 
in the woods, talk about fairy tales, the wolf in the woods, he brings the body of the wolf at the same time. It's mm-hmm. as if the brothers are themselves doppelgangers for the wolves. Absolutely. Right? And we even get their physical description. Um, my ancestors were unusually tall, bony, hairy, violent, and vigorous. And they are proud of the fact that their voices are so loud that when they shout, but if they were wolves, they would howl, the leaves of the trees tremble. So these aristocrats before the revolution may be real men, but they are the ones who are bringing problems into the world. Today's aristocrats are just chance aristocrats, but they are still the children of wolves, the descendants of wolves, whether they have the power and whether they hunt or not. I think in addition to being a joke, This is a story that looks at the way people of a certain class protect themselves and oppress, live off another class, and they're comfortable doing it because they have a whole society, men and women, that have complementary roles in supporting it. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a great uh, line that I, I love to read this story aloud and it's 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 fun to read this story aloud, but there's a great line about how big these these ancestors were, and just as the wolf or wolves were big, it says here, the strong riders seemed rather to be carrying the heavy beasts, that is their horses, between their thighs and to bear them off as if they were flying. So it's not the that the men are riding the horses as much as that. The horses seem to be attached to the men who are flying across the across the woods. Yes, as if the men were warlocks. It's it's a ama- it's an amazingly um, visual image, and there's so much magic in the storytelling. You know, as as the narrator uh, tells, uh, well. There's two narrators. As the Marquis tells the story, we get a sense of sort of that magic of of the writing. Um, There's a line here, a paragraph that goes, On rising he went to see the dogs, then the horses, and then he shot little birds about the castle until the moment for departing to hunt down some great beast. And then we get that that sort of the, the, the first and the second and the third. We get that again with the son of the Marquis, the son of the Viscount, the general, and the colonel. Right. right. Uh, there's that sort of that invoking of the we three witches sort of image from the beginning of Macbeth. Yeah. And I think that that's so, uh, so much about it. they are almost magical. And at the end of the story, one of the guests asks, but this is just a legend, isn't it? And the Marquis says... Every word from beginning to end is completely true. <laughs> well, which, you know, which doesn't say that it's not a legend, of course. No, it doesn't. Right? Uh, because there are, after all, myths, that uh, legends, that, uh, that we take to be true. In the case of this story, um, since there's an opening reference in the first line to Saint-Hubert, since, um, as you pointed out, the brothers wondered if they should have... Uh, bullets that are blessed by their bishop cousin. Um, Since we are told that um, 
they run like a monk from the devil. Um, you know, th there are a lot of references here to another set of stories for which we have no physical proof, mm -hmm. but which lots of people take to be true. Lots well, there's dialogue. There's dialogue from this hunt. Who is there to tell tell the you know to record it? Well, the hunting bro the one hunting brother who came back and told his his uh, his widowed uh, sister in law, which gives an entirely other possibility. Maybe in fact, since this happens in 1764, the same year as the birth of the forebear of our inner narrator. Maybe the one brother who never married because of his love for the hunt is, in fact, jealous of his older brother, who, in fact, is the one who has the estate. Mm -hmm. She's the older, is the one who has a child, which therefore could have prevented the younger one from inheriting had the child not been born and the older one died, then the younger could have inherited that maybe in fact, these two wonderful brothers who love each other turn on each other. That's very much in the, in the tradition of werewolf stories, isn't it? It certainly is. And you know, when we see the increasing predations of this fantastic wolf, um, it's time to realize that not only is he very large, um, but he is larger than any wolf could possibly be, at least in his appetites. We're told that he stole one night into the pig pen of the Chateau d'Arville, and he ate, it says in the English, the two fattest pigs. Well, I mean, pigs weigh hundreds of pounds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wolves weigh, you know, the largest wolves weigh three or four hundred pounds. You can't eat two 400-pound pigs. You know, I mean, it can't be done. And besides which, this wolf is eating every night. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, in the French, it says that the pigs that they, he said this, mangea, that is, that's the, 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 as you know, the past perfect, mangea les deux, these, the, the two pigs, pleut élevé. Okay? Now, literally, it means the two most beautifully raised of the pigs. But, Eleve is the word for student. And to be uh, bel élevé, uh, beaux élevé, um, is to be well raised. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, what this wolf has done is eaten the two most civilized, most mature pigs that are available. It's as if, if we think of the wolf as a doppelganger of the aristocrats who just loved going after large game, right? It's their sport. It's not that they need to do it or to, for food or protection. They love to do it. If you think of the wolf as a doppelganger for the aristocrats, what we're being told is that the aristocrats are selectively unmanning which is what the wolf does to the older brother. He unmans him. Right? He's selectively unmanning um, the most advanced of the common people, those who are looked down upon as pigs by the aristocracy. Their best specimens are the ones that get eaten. This, I think, um, it is a joke. I don't disagree. But I think in 1883, this would also be very bitter political satire. Mm hmm. I, 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 I can't I, I can't think of that ending where he says, you know, it's all true. Every word of it uh, without like going back in the and points in the text and and just like 
like shaking my head in disbelief. So when the brother has, da- I, I like that they that you're attributing the death of of uh, uh, Jean to uh, the wolf because actually what happens is that he dashes his own brains out in the chase of the wolf, right? He hits a branch, his head pops open, right. <laughs> his brains are splattered out. Um, the brother picks him up, throws him on the horse, and and then the brains are <laughs> further splattered on the sides of the horse. The the spurs cut the trees, and the horse takes on the the fervor of of its rider. And then when he finally does corner the wolf in a valley, and the moon rises up above, it's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, it, there's this there's this wonderful sentence. Then he threw himself upon the monster. <laughs> oh, which one's the monster now? Uh-huh. He felt himself strong enough to overturn a mountain, to bruise stones in his hands. The beast tried to bite him, seeking to strike at his stomach, but he seized it by the neck without even using his weapon, and he strangled it gently, listening to the stoppage of the breathing in his throat. And the beatings in its heart. This is not the story of a you know a guy going out and shooting a wolf. This is the story of uh, a mortal struggle that seems not as much about a wolf against a man as a man against another man. Indeed, and that's one of the reasons that I wonder if the uh, translator, this translator, calling it the white wolf rather than the wolf, is giving us a an echo of the white whale. Uh, when Ahab goes after uh, Moby Dick, um, it seems as if Moby Dick thinks like a, a human. He turns to attack the ship, which is something real whales don't do. And at the end, of course, well, just before the end, um, in the, 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 the climactic battle between Ahab and, uh, and the whale, um, Ahab gets caught in the rope that is attached to the whale because the whale has been harpooned. And so Moby Dick drags Ahab down under the sea, presumably to his death. Um, yes, the, the horse, um, the, the horse galloping because Jean is so enraged as to want to, to go blindly after the wolf um, is what gets Jean killed. But it seems, from the standpoint of Francois, Jean's younger brother, who shares his enthusiasm for the hunt, as if it were the wolf having induced uh, Jean to ride so wildly that his brains were bashed out. It's in that same kind of ambiguous place where we ask, to what extent do we impute things to nature? That mm-hmm. Melville has given us the white whale. And here I think Maupassant is asking us, you know, to what extent have we imputed this? I mean, there are no real wolves who can eat that much. I mean, there just aren't. So, you know, this is a story. It is a legend. But that doesn't mean it's not true. Mm-hmm. I, I love it, it is a tale sanguinary. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's not just about, you know, a bloody tale where blood is spilt, but also one that riles up the blood, not just of the hunters in the hunt, but in the telling of their tale afterwards and in the women who listen to it. You know, I've noticed um, when we have nested narratives, this is, I think, a general literary law. When Mm -hmm. we have a nested narrative, 
Whatever else might be going on, there is a question about the education of the outermost narrator. That is, why is the outermost narrator structured into this narrative? What is that outermost narrator supposed to be learning? And in this tale, what we have is a, is a front framing. Uh, the, that is, we never come back to that narrator saying something. We just end with the statement of a, of a lady at the dinner at which the Marquis is telling his story. So we have this front framing in which someone, presumably side by side with us, um, that impersonal narrator says, you know, this was the dinner that was going on. And this is the story that got told. And then we come back to the dinner, but we never come back to any idea from the narrator's viewpoint, that outermost narrator. It seems to me that what Maupassant is doing is suggesting to us that we have to ask ourselves, have we learned anything here? Is there, is there something about the allure of violence, the legitimation of killing, the, 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 um, the taking and the destroying as if it were a good thing? Is there something here that we just reject? Or do we, in fact, as you say, find that, yeah, there is something enticing here. And maybe these problems come about because it's in our nature, too, to glorify the hunter, the soldier, the aristocrat, the robber baron, the, the great wolf. But of course, there's always more to say.